Good morning, beloved Orangewood. How's everyone this morning? Have you noticed uh, the thermometer getting a little bit higher? Summer's here, and I'm for that. Got my rubber sandals, got my straw hat. Any James Taylor fans here? Well, summer is here. For a pastor, that often means you hear wedding bells. I mean, it's the uh, wedding season. I'm in the midst of three weddings in four weeks. Uh, it's a joy to do them. Uh, yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating my nephew, Taylor Myers' wedding. Uh, he is the youngest of the Myers. All four of their weddings, outdoors. Don't know what they have against air conditioning. I strongly recommend it this time of year, uh, but God was gracious. The uh, rains held off. We were at Casa Feliz. That was the setting for this beautiful wedding. And I, I tell you, my nephew's like six seven. He's dwarfing me. I'm telling him, can you shrug down a little bit here? I'm feeling bad. No, I'm just kidding. Didn't tell him that. But as his wife emerges, or who's about to be his wife, Haley, comes around the corner, I said, Taylor, you got to see this. Of doing weddings, you know, I got the best seat in the house. I mean, I, I get to see the bride first and come down the aisle. And, oh, I love it. It's, a, it's amazing because I've never seen an ugly bride. I mean, something about that dress, it's just beautiful. And uh, not only that, just the symbolism of everything that's happening. And so there we were, and I, I put my, my hand on his shoulder and said, man, isn't that amazing? And we both kind of teared up. I, I don't think, I got to be honest, I don't think I saw a bride come down the aisle where I didn't get a little emotional. And just the beauty and the symbolism of, of what is about to happen. It's, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? And usually, usually weddings, I mean, they, there's stories of weddings gone bad. But for the most part, by God's grace, through all the years, I mean, every wedding has been phenomenal. It's just been incredible. Yeah, we've had some people pass out and some of those kind of things happen. But it's such a beautiful ceremony. And you want to say, can we just freeze time? Because what happens so beautifully on that day has a propensity of producing dysfunctional families. You want to say what happened? It was so good. It was so beautiful. It was so worshipful. It was so right. How did we get here? When we look at the story of the Bible, we look at the story of Noah, we want to say it started so right. Noah, I mean, he's called righteous and blameless before the, of the Lord. Noah, he, he walked with God, it says. The story starts so beautiful. And I love the story of Noah starting so beautiful because it's contrast with a world gone crazy. I mean, Noah was born in a time of amazing corruption. And boy, did his life shine brightly. Well, today we're going to get to the end of his story and we're going to find a drunken father and a perverted son highlighting or lowlighting the end of the story. And we want to scratch our heads and say, are you kidding me? Something that started so good, how did it get here? How did it end like this? From Noah's dysfunctional family, we're going to see next week emerges a dysfunctional community. I mean, through this one man's brokenness, the world again is going to teeter off balance and out of control. We'll pick that up next week. Well, this week, we got two important things, and these are really important for us to look at as we look at this story. And here are the two things. You want to follow along in your bulletin. They're listed for you. The first question we want to address is this. How does Noah's dysfunctional family fit into God's story? 
love it about God's story. He tells us the truth of his people. And I got good news for those of us who are a bit dysfunctional. God's people usually are. We all are. But the question we want to say is, I mean, God gave us this amazing, marvelous, beautiful, glorious story. How does Noah's dysfunctional family fit in God's story? It's the first thing we're going to look at. It's important. The second thing we're going to look at equally or maybe more importantly is this. How does our dysfunctional lives fit in God's story? How, do, how does God make any sense about the brokenness and the dysfunction of our lives? And how do they fit into his story. If you've been here for a while and you heard me preach, you know that we're going to look to Jesus because Jesus is actually going to be the one at the end of this is going to show us two things. He's going to show us how Noah's dysfunctional family fits wonderfully in God's story and what it does and how Jesus brings hope to our dysfunctional stories. What an amazing story before us. I love getting ready for this message and seeing my assistant and my staff saying, uh, you're going to preach the story? You're going to be careful, aren't you? So wait till you see what God's word has for us here. Hey, it's in God's word. We need it. Um, God's word is holy and without error. And the wisdom of our great God, he tells us how he loves us and rescues us. And the great thing is, it's, it's not always a G-rated story. Uh, sometimes uh, it gets graphic and sometimes it's, but it's always honest, always authentic. Whoever you are and however God got you here, he wants to speak to you. And he just wants to tell you how much he loves you. And he wants to do it through looking through the lens of other people's lives that are like us, broken. Let's look to God's word. Genesis 19, verses 18 through the end of the chapter 28. Hear the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham, he was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard. Apparently it was a good vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw, gazed, longed, uh, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be uh, to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let us pray. 
God, first and foremost, thank you for telling us your story. Thank you for telling us how we got here and who we are and who you are. But God, I love the fact that you tell us your story without trying to clean up your people, without trying to mask the truth that we're broken and that we really need grace and we really need a Savior named Jesus. Father, this is, could be in many ways a very confusing story. So would you come through the power of the Spirit of Jesus and would you be our teacher today? Would you be pleased to speak through a broken sinner like me who often acts like him? And we just ask that you would come and, and you would be seen. That you'd give us ears to hear your voice. Oh God, because you love us, come and give us minds to understand your word. That it was written a long time ago, but it's living and active and it's for us today. Oh Father, would you give us hearts Hearts that believe in you. Hearts that beat for you. And hearts that, that embrace your love and your truth. God, would you be so powerfully with us that you actually change us as we're together to be more like Jesus so that our feet will be empowered to walk in your truth and your obedience. That we would leave here rejoicing in your love and called to tell your story. Father, the things that are wrong or my opinion May those things fall away. But the things that are true, the things that contain the good news of Jesus, would you use those things to bring you glory and make us more like your Son, our Savior. And it's in his beautiful and blessed name that we pray. Amen. All right, two things we need to look at with this story. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, there's an outline for you. The first one is this. How does Noah's dysfunctional family fit into God's story? I mean, Noah's story in the Bible has such an amazing start. As we look to Genesis, Genesis 5 will tell us a genealogy at a time when the world is really turning sinful. And it will tell us about a boy that would be born named Noah. And what's significant about Noah is his name. His name Noah means relief or rest. It was actually prophesied about this Noah that this son, this child, he would bring relief to the curse that is on earth. That he would bring rest to those who are affected by sin's curse. I mean, talk about a high prophecy for a young boy being born. That's Noah. It's basically saying this, this guy's going to change the world. He's going to bring relief that we long for. Then you get to chapter 6 and it says this about Noah. It says that he was righteous. We see that as we examine scripture that by God's grace, through his faith and God's promise, that he was declared righteous in God's sight. But it says more. It says that he was blameless. This Noah was a righteous man. He was, he was a blameless man in God's sight. But it even says this, he walked with God. What a beautiful portrait we have in chapter 6 of, of this man of God. This righteous one, this blameless one, walking with God. And then we get to this anticlimactic end of the story. And we find out this one to bring relief. This one whose name means rest. This one who's righteous and blameless while he's drunk and naked in his own tent. And he's produced a perverted son. 
How in the world does that story fit? You see, it fits this way so beautifully is that Noah, uh, like all the heroes in the Bible, point to the fact that there's a greater one that has to come. That God has promised relief for us. He has promised rest for us from sin's curse. But we realize that the relief and the rest that Noah did bring, and he did. I mean, God used him to, uh, to preserve God's promises through his wrath of a flood. It's amazing. But here's what we realize. It wasn't enough. You see, when we read the story about Noah, we need to lean in and long and say, we need a greater Noah. We need one who's, who's greater than Noah that will bring us the relief from the sin and the curse of sin that we long for. The one who will truly bring us rest. I mean, rest in the holy God's gaze. Rest that's, that's now and forever and lasting. You see, the story of the Bible is this, is the heroes are held up in a way that show us their cracks and their brokenness so that we could long for more. We could long for Jesus. All the heroes, David, Abraham, Noah, they're all penultimate heroes, secondary to Jesus. And when you read these stories, you should long for more. Come, Jesus, come and give us rest. Last Sunday, I had the privilege of having one of my childhood friends here. Uh, I knew her since I was four years old, and she and her family were in town and uh, worshiped with us, and we had the privilege of spending the day afterwards with them. And um, the husband, Carl, asked me a great question. He said, Jeff, it, it seems to me that Jesus is held up higher than anyone else in the Bible, even the Father. And when I pray, don't I pray to the Father? Why does Jesus seem to have top billing in the Bible? I said, well, here's why. You're right that Jesus is just equal with the Father and the Spirit. But according to God's word, he's the hero of the Bible. I mean, every promise that God made, he fulfills. Every curse that God has threatened, he he absorbs. I mean, he's the one that we long for. He was the prophet to come. He's the, the priest to come. He is the king to come. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He has the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Because he is God's ultimate hero and son. So how does the story of Noah and his dysfunction and drunkenness fit into God's story? It shows us that we need to long for another. We need to long for one named Jesus. But there's even more. You see, Noah is in this line, this line of God's promise. And if we examine God's story carefully, and we realize that in Genesis 3.15, even when we rebelled from God, even when we sinned and there was a curse that came, God is so amazingly loving and gracious He can't stop blessing us and pursuing us. So even when we rebelled, he says, you know what? I'm going to send a seed. I'm going to send a seed to come who will make all things right. I'm going to send one who comes who will defeat all of God's and our enemies. And he will ultimately bring relief and rest. And we see that seed. And that seed runs through Noah's family. But we realize that it's not Noah himself. It's interesting. The story of the Bible is this. God creates Adam. Adam has how many sons? Three. He has Cain, Abel, um, and he has Seth. Cain proves to be an unrighteous son. And according to the Bible, he is the seed of the serpent, Satan. There's another one that was killed, a righteous son named Abel. And then eventually Seth. And out of Seth will come a seed of the woman that will produce a savior. 
Interesting parallels between Adam and Noah. Both were men of the soil. Both had three sons. The three sons that, that uh, Noah will have, well, he'll have Shem. He'll be of the righteous line. He'll have Japheth, which really, most of us, that's the Gentiles who come to Christ. But he'll also have Ham. And Ham will prove uh, to give birth to Canaanites. He is the seed of the serpent. So here's the point, my brothers and sisters. How does the story fit in? It's amazing how Noah's story fits in. The story continues. The story continues in a way that we see that there's hope, that there's still going to be an epic battle between good and evil. And there's still going to be the seed that Ham is the seed of the serpent. And Shem is the seed uh, of the woman that is to come. And as the story unfolds, we look to Jesus to be that ultimate fulfillment. All right, one more thing about how it fits in to the grand scheme of the Bible. I want you to slip your feet into the sandals of the original reading audience. I want you to go back to those who originally heard this, because this is so important. Let's get our ears on to hear what they heard. Okay, now who are they? Now, these are God's people who have left Egypt in slavery. They're, they're in the wilderness, and they're heading to the promised land. And Noah or Moses is telling him the story of Noah and his sons. Why is that important? Well, they're going to a place called Canaan. And Canaan is going to be filled with Canaanites, uh, uh, Jebusites, uh, other ites uh, that all come from Ham. Think about this. How does this fit in the biblical story? They're realizing that God has promised them a land. And where they're heading is filled with people of sexual perversion. Where they're heading is people that have rebelled against God and people that they got to be very weary of. And so it's amazing that God tells us this true story and how it fits into the big story is that it points to the fact that Noah's not a hero that's good enough. We need Jesus. It points to the fact that there's still a seed to come. Come, Lord Jesus. And amazingly, it points to the fact that those Canaanites, we know where they came from. All right, let's talk more about our lives. Have you ever seen a, uh, recently a, a family disintegrate before your eyes? I hope it's not yours. I mean, one of the, one of the hardest things you can see is to see a, a family just implode. When I, where I grew up, there was a family that had a, a cottage close to my family's cottage, and we spent our summers together. They had five daughters and one son and uh, a husband and wife, and so many ways, a pillar of that little community. It's such strength for them, and so much of my identity was, was shaped by them. And now the, the father has passed away, and the mother is in, in really bad health, and uh, the family is just disintegrating before your eyes. I mean, there's so many fissures, there's so many just you know, chasms and, and um, rebellions and arguments. And they're arguing over stupid things like money, property. And you look at the core of this, and you know, I watch this family disintegrate, and there's two things that really are at the key. It's the abuse of alcohol, and it's sexual promiscuity. And you look at these two things and say, man, what amazing damage these have had on families. We're going to look at this and ask the, answer the question, how does our dysfunctional lives fit into God's story? And we're going to realize that this next part gives us two important lessons that we're going to look at. Life lessons, very practical life lessons of how to live. But more importantly, a gospel lesson. Because unless we understand the gospel lesson and the good news of Jesus Christ, life lessons are meaningless. But let's start off with the fact of life, life lessons. Life lessons. What's the first life lesson? 
It's this. The righteous, by God's grace and faith, the blameless are still prone to sinful depravity. We still need a Savior. We are not saved because of our righteousness. We're not saved because we are blameless. We're saved solely by God's grace through faith and the work of his son. And it's amazing the transformation that has happened now that we are in Christ Jesus. We are called new creatures. God truly has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. He truly has paid the price Jesus has on the cross. He truly has robed us in his righteousness. We right now, listen to this, in Christ Jesus, we are a part of his family. We are beloved. We are co-heirs with Christ. That is some really good news. But we're still sinful. And we still have the propensity to make a whole mess of our lives if we don't follow his teaching and his word and do things our own way. So we got to start off by remembering that even though we are his, we are still so prone to wander. I bet you know that. Let me talk a little bit about another life lesson. Honor your parents. Honor your parents. In this really weird story of three sons, you have two sons that honor their dad. Two sons that say, you know what? Dad's not acting the way he should, but we're still going to honor him. And we're going to make sure that we, we cover him. We're going to make sure we have his back. We're going to honor him. And show him honor in what we do. And you have one son who says, no, I, I'm not going to honor my, my dad. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make sport of my dad. I, I'm going to use my dad and his current condition and his nakedness to, to feed an addiction that I have. I, I'm going to have uh, where he is be an amusement to my sinful life. It's amazing. Not only does he dishonor his dad by, by going in and, and having a moment with him. It's, the Hebrew here, it says he saw him. It's very, very difficult. There's more than just, hey, I saw my dad nude. The reality is, is there was some voyeurism. There was some really inappropriate behavior. Um, in the Jewish tradition, they believe that he actually castrated his dad or sodomized his dad. I think that goes too far. I think that we don't know exactly what happened, but it was more than this. Oh, oh dad, dad's dead in clothes on. Ham, amazingly, dishonored his father. And you know what he does? He goes tells his brother, hey guys, guess what I just did with dad? I mean, how depraved. But let's look again to Shem and, and Japheth. In the midst of this crazy, crazy story, they honored their father. Young people, you gotta hear this. They honored him when he didn't seem to deserve it. You see, honoring mom and dad doesn't depend on how they deserve it. It's a command of God. And that's what we're called to do. Um, all right. Honor your parents. The second one, actually the third life lesson, avoid alcohol abuse. Alcohol abuse, it renders you stupid or any substance that will alter your mind. Now, you look at this story closely, and we'll probably want to say this. What's wrong with Noah? I mean, the guy had a great crop. He made some really good wine. Okay, he drank too much of it. But look at, look at Noah. I mean, Noah is in the privacy of his own home, his tent. He's just... Happens to be naked at home, having a little bit too much to drink. What's the big deal? Is there something wrong with that? It might lead to the question, is drinking alcohol wrong? I bet you many of you have grown up, grew up in a church where maybe someone who stood up before you like me has said to you that it is sinful and wrong to have any alcohol. So is that an extreme of what's happened here to avoid drunkenness? 
Well, let's answer the question, is drinking alcohol wrong? I want to begin by saying no. I mean, Jesus drank alcohol. Uh, and don't think it was just grape juice. If that's grew up your tradition, you thought it was just grape juice. He didn't have a, he drank wine, okay? Uh, he went to parties where wine was there. He was called friend of sinners. As a matter of fact, they called him a drunk and a glutton. He was neither. He was neither because they saw him partake. Unlike John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, that's not for me. That was a conscious decision as, as a Nazarite vow. I don't have the time to explain that right now. But the point is this. Is alcohol, drinking alcohol wrong? I will say, no, it's not. Um, our, I think, secondly, our kids need to see responsible drinking. I think we ought to see a, a glass of wine. Uh, if you are not able to do that in your home, if it's not responsible, then it is wrong. Is drinking wrong? Young people, if you are not of age, yes. Every time. We talked about it last week. I mean, you got to obey the authorities of the land. And uh, it may seem arbitrary, but that's the reality is you got to put yourself in submission. And so if you are underage, it's always wrong. If you're driving, it's always wrong. If you're abusing young people, old, doesn't matter. If you're abusing alcohol, it is always wrong. You see, God's word says this, be sober-minded. It's not good for us to live unrestrained lives. Drunkenness has a tendency to lead to nakedness and loss of control. And when we lose control, bad things happen. And one of the most humbling things to me in this story is his, Noah's actions were a stumbling block to his kid. He might have argued, you know what, I'm just at home enjoying the best wine I've ever made and I'm just going to have a good time. What's the big deal? And the reality is, is if his abuse of alcohol led to a stumbling block for his child, it gave an opportunity for him uh, to enter in and really mess things up. So parents, although we have the right, or adults, uh, let's make sure that we're looking out for those and never being a stumbling block to others. All right, next life lesson. Avoid sexual perversion. Why? Because it renders negative effects on your family for generations. It's so true. Well, what should keep us from sexual uh, perversion? I mean, sex is an amazing gift from God. Uh, we need to use it as he has intended uh, we look at God's word and any sexual activities outside of what he's told us is a perversion. Uh, the Greek word is pornonia, where we get pornography. So we got to make sure the one who has given us this great gift, celebrate him and use it in a way that brings him glory. It's true. He actually can in a way that he can bless. Again, all of our dysfunctions shall point us to Jesus. You know, the thing about Ham. He, he used his dad's weak moment to sneak in to his tent and to feed his fetish and perversions. You know the truth about us? We and our children, we're just two clicks away to feed our addictions and perversions, our fetishes. Let me really challenge you, church, we live in a time where you know, this story can seem so ancient and it can seem so weird and perverted and out there. But what nakedness are you uncovering? And the reality is, is, is any nakedness apart from your spouse's is not yours. And it may seem like it's not harming anybody. And it may seem like it's something that they're offering that you're just stepping into. But it's not yours. So we got to look at the fact of what, what are our fetishes? What are those things that are in our life that that we are uncovering.
that we need to turn to Christ and the gospel to set us free. You see, all of our dysfunctions, again, should point us to our core need of a Savior named Jesus. Let's get to the gospel lesson. The gospel lesson is so beautiful here. You maybe missed it, but you can't. It's so good. Let's look back to God's word. It says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, in the midst of all this craziness. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. How's that the gospel? All right, here it is. You see, Jesus is the true seed of Shem. Jesus is the true God of Shem. Jesus is that blessed Lord that gives us his blessing. We are those who act like him. We are those who, who deserve God's curse. But we are those who receive God's blessing. And here is how. Amazing. God, the Word of God, becomes flesh. And He becomes man and He dwells among us. And do you know what that word means when it says that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us? It means this, is that He tabernacled. He pitched a tent. He lived in flesh to dwell among us. Why would He do that? He did it so that He would live a life that we were supposed to live. To die a death that we deserve. It's amazing. He tabernacled. He pitched a tent here to bring God's blessing. He, he, he became man to rescue those like us who act like him and deserve God's wrath. And now he does something amazing through the love of the Father and the grace of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. He calls us into his family, into his relationship, into the tent of Shem. God's blessing. We're Japheth. It's who we are. We're those who receive the blessings of God by the grace of God through the Son of God. And he covers our sins. And he blesses us and brings us into communion and union with him. Isn't it amazing? That's the gospel. And that's the story of what Jesus does. How does the story fit? Well, Jesus becomes that blessing and that seed and that hope. How does it fit? Jesus comes and rescues us and calls us into relation with him. You see, this meal that we're about to partake is a tangible reminder of what God has done for us and the desire he has to bless us. It is amazing because this meal is a reminder that, that God tabernacled. He pitched the tent to come and live with us, to rescue with us. It's a reminder of, of just how rich that sacrifice was. How expensive to cover your dysfunction and mine. So as you come to this table, be mindful of the price that was paid. But this isn't for everybody. This meal, according to Scripture, is only for those who are dwelling in the tent of Shem. Well, let me say it more clearly. This meal is only for those that, by God's grace, have turned to Jesus and realized, I'm disqualified from the Father's love. I'm dysfunctional. But Jesus isn't. And oh, do I embrace him and love him. And he is my Lord and Savior. And if that's you, 
If you've come to the place in your life where you realize that you needed a Savior and by God's grace put your faith and trust in Christ, you, my brothers and sisters, are with me by God's grace in the tent of God's blessing. And if that's where you are, he wants to feed you and he wants to strengthen you and he wants to remind you of what he's done for you. But if you're here and this is just a story and this is just religion, God's word says, don't partake. This is only for those in the tent, those by God's grace in faith with Christ Jesus. But more importantly, let me urge you, exhort you, plead with you, embrace Christ. Embrace him as your Lord and as your Savior, your God. He's the only way. He is the only truth. He's the only life. The only way to God's blessing is through Jesus. Embrace him and then come and partake. Let us pray. Father, thank you for telling us the truth about those who have gone before us, that as amazing as Noah was, so faithful for so many years, building that crazy ark in the midst of persecution, so faithful as he was offering you a sacrifice when it was all over, so faithful as he was, as righteous and blameless and walking with you, He's just like us, a broken sinner who needs to find his rest and relief in you and you alone. Jesus, thanks for being better than Noah. Thanks for staying sober-minded. Thank you so much for doing all that the Father requires of us. Thank you for absorbing the Father's wrath for us. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for conquering death and rising from the dead. And thank you that we now can find our shelter, our shade, our joy in the tents of Shem, the tents of Jesus. And thank you for this meal that so tangibly points us to that sacrifice that was made for us, those of us who act like Ham, to enter in. Father, I pray for anyone here that's might have known you for a while or thought they knew you, but now really sees you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. May today be the day that each one of us embraces by your grace through faith, Jesus as Lord and as God. Come and feed us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. As the elders come forward, please prepare your hearts.